turn our Bibles this morning to Mark uh, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 27. Say account of the cross, the crucifixion. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. What we've been doing is looking at the story of the last few days of Jesus' life on earth from the perspective of all four of the Gospels. If you enjoy detective novels or highbrow uh, crime shows on television like uh, Columba, Columbo and, and Blue Bloods, for example, uh, you'll have seen that whenever there's a crime scene and there have been multiple eyewitnesses to the crime, each eyewitness will provide a different perspective on what has happened. Uh, if, you, if you stay with the story till its conclusion, you usually find out that the different perspectives actually give more significance to the story. They, they help to see, the, the detective to see where, where, where the issues lie and to find the culprit. Usually, these differences... Uh, add to the data available, and they help towards clarity. And so it is with the four Gospels. The, there are differences between all of the accounts. There are idiosyncrasies that each uh, Gospel writer has, but together they provide us with a consistent and coherent account of the crucifixion of our Lord. What I've been doing is really picking up the threads uh, of the story, and uh, the ones we haven't examined yet, we're going to look at today and next Sunday. So first of all, there are the mockers. We haven't done much with them. Let's take a moment and look at the group of mockers who are, are standing around the cross and, and who are directing their scorn at Jesus himself. There are three distinct groups of mockers. Mark, in his account that we've just read, mentions the passers-by. Uh, these were the incidental mockers. Uh, these people remind the Lord of his own words, which were by now famous, about the destruction of the temple. That word translated aha in Mark uh, conveys a note of vindictive sarcasm. Very hard to reproduce it in English but it suggests vindictive sarcasm. And they're saying to Jesus, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, what are they doing? What they are doing is they are mocking the powerlessness of Jesus. 
He can't do anything about their mockery. He can't come down and have a, a fight with them. He can't come down and even have an argument with them. He is too weak to do even that. He is powerless. Not only are they mocking his powerlessness, but they're actually leading him into temptation by repeating Satan's temptation at the beginning of the gospel, recorded in all of the gospels. When Satan tempts Jesus, you remember, what was Satan's temptation? Use your power. Use your power. Display your power so that people will believe in you. Save yourself, they were saying to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, if you are the King of Israel, save yourself. Demonstrate your power. Exercise it, and we will believe in you. So they're mocking him in his powerlessness. They're tempting him uh, to use his power on his own behalf. What they did not know, however, is that he was in the process of doing precisely what he had said. John records the Jews asking for a sign of his authority to cleanse the temple. You may remember that he went into the temple and he threw out all those who were using the temple as a means of commercial activity. He throws them out and they ask Jesus, what authority do you have to do this? And his answer was simply this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the apostle John who records those words puts next to them his explanation, actually in John chapter 2, he spoke of the temple of his body, John says. He spoke of the temple of his body. For Jesus himself is the final temple. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The temple was the place where God met with Israel. The tabernacle, then the temple. In Jesus, God is with us. And you remember, this mockery is answered in uh, Mark chapter 15. When the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom... That's God's answer to this this mockery of Jesus' statement. He means the inner curtain of the temple. The curtain that separates the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary where the the Ark of the Covenant was, where the cherubim uh, were mounted over the mercy seat, where the invisible God chose to identify, that's where I sit, that's where I meet with my people. Only once a year, the great high priest entered into that holy place, into the presence of the Most High. And in the presence of the Most High, he uttered the, the holy name, the tetragrammaton, the four letters of the secret name of God. Now, when Jesus died then, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. It's a divine action. And the tearing of that curtain signifies the end of the old era of sacrifices. In place of those symbols and rituals that were intended to point forward to the future, now the reality has come. The reality towards which the whole sacramental system of Israel pointed has now come to fruition. It is Jesus 
as our high priest by his sacrifice that now reconciles us to God. And the tearing of the curtain signals that the way into God's presence is now open to all believers. The writer of the Hebrews comments on the tearing of the curtain and of the relationship to Jesus as the temple. He puts it like this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not that made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats or calves, that is through the sacramental offerings of Israel, but through his own blood, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all. You are to see in the, in the tearing of the temple that in the tearing of Jesus' flesh on the cross, there you have the destruction of the old ta- temple characterized by something of this creation. His body was something of this creation. And in the tearing of his flesh, And in the tearing of the curtain, we see a way being opened up right into the holiest place of all in the sanctuary so that we might have communion with God himself. God removed this veil, and Christ has opened the way to God. The writer goes on, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, now we have confidence to enter into the holiest place of all by the blood of Jesus by that new living way which he has opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his own flesh. And since we have a great high priest in the house of God, let us now draw near in full assurance to worship him. In Judaism, you kept back. In Judaism, you kept away. Only the priest could function in this area, and only the high priest could function in the holiest place of all. You were at a distance. Now, as priests unto God by our adoption as sons of God, and now being a holy priesthood, we, all of us, every one of us, may enter the presence of God at any time with boldness and confidence, because Jesus has opened the way to God. It's the most precious, wonderful truth of all. So we've, we have this issue raised then by this first group of mockers. The second group of mockers we've already looked at. These are the religious leaders. Uh, they were incensed that Pilate had put over Jesus' cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They complained to Pilate, but Pilate had got his revenge post factum, by naming Jesus as the king and thereby the cross as his throne from which he will draw the world to himself. And to this day, the cross is a great attractive power. It's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Now, the third group. In the third group, there's only one mocker. These are the two men crucified with Jesus. These two men had been arrested for violent revolution. One of those men recognized that Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' kingly rule was nonviolent. Somehow, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, this man's eyes were open to see the face of God in the face of Jesus. That this powerless man beside him in the center cross was the true king. And he wanted to be in Jesus' side. Not only on the cross, he wanted to be in Jesus' side 
in the glory. He says to Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingly power. And he names him, Jesus, will you remember me? He uses the name that means salvation. God is salvation. He uses that striking name of Jesus as he calls on him and asks him if he will remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Jesus' reply is profound. Today you will be with me in paradise. One thinks of the paradise that was the Garden of Eden before the fall of humanity. The Garden of Eden where there was the tree of life. You think of the paradise that was Sidon. Sidon that was going to be destroyed in a great catastrophe. Before the catastrophe and before the falling into sin, Sidon was known as a paradise to people. And then there's the paradise that is part of Hades. That is the place of the dead in Judaism. When you died, you went to the place of punishment or judgment, or you went to paradise, the place where the saints gathered after death. And Jesus promises this man that later that day, this man's soul would accompany Jesus' human soul in paradise among the people of God in that happy paradise of God. St. Augustine, in one of his sermons, puts it like this. One of the robbers reviled Jesus. The other robber confessed his sin and committed himself to Christ's mercy. The cross of Christ was a judgment seat. And from that cross, he condemned the reviler and he released and saved the believer. And then turning to his congregation, the preacher, Augustine says, fear reviler. Rejoice, believer. That which he did in the humility of his broken, bleeding body on the tree, he will do again in the glory on the last day. So we have the mockers, and you can see the message that comes out even of the study of them. Second focus is the mother, the mother All four evangelists mention the presence of women at the foot of the cross. Mark says, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. John puts it like this, or he adds, There was his mother and his mother's sister. John's account mentions four particular women, although there are others present. Salome in Mark is uh, suggested to be the mother of James and John and to be the name of Mary's sister. That's Jesus' mother's sister, Jesus' aunt. Uh, This would have made James and John cousins of Jesus and explain why they felt a bit entitled. Their mothers, I think, spoke to Jesus about when he comes into his kingdom, giving them good seats. And they themselves were arguing about getting the good seats. Well, you can see that happening. Uh, They uh, felt a sense of entitlement. Uh, It's possible, according to Herman Ritterboss, that this accounts for the reference to John as the disciple that Jesus loved. He was a dearly loved cousin. 
And then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas, the mother of James and Joseph. Ritterboss, who's a Reformed uh, theologian and commentator, a good commentary in John's Gospel, uh, thinks that the early tradition going way back through Eusebius into the early part of the church is that this woman, this Mary, the wife of Clopas, is a sister-in-law of Mary by virtue of the fact that Clopas is thought to be Mary's husband's Joseph, Joseph's brother. So that would have meant more relatives for Jesus uh, in the family. But the issue that I want you to notice is that at this point, Mary the mother is there among these women who are afar off. And one of the things we're told about them is that they could see everything that was going on on the cross, bringing to our minds the language of Zechariah chapter 12. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. They were looking from a distance. They were seeing everything that happened. There were crowds and crowds of people in front of them. The crowds were coming and going all day long, and they were hurling their abuse at Jesus on the cross, sometimes spitting on him and reviling him. But then as the day wore on, and the nearer it got to when you get your dinner on that Passover Friday, the crowds probably thinned a bit, and the women were enabled and emboldened to get closer to Jesus. We're only told that Jesus saw his mother along with the disciple that he loved. And then Jesus speaks first to his mother, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. The language is an adoption arrangement. Uh, If and only if he's the only son of his mother... He will have been, she would have been left alone in the world after his death. John will take her to himself. He'll take her into his inner life setting. He will gain a new home, a new mother to care for, and for him to look after. In the midst of discharging his duty towards God on our behalf, Jesus did not forget his duty towards his mother. You think, well, there's a billion miles of difference between the thing he was doing for God for our salvation and looking after his mother. You may think that. But Calvin is right in saying this. He did not forget his duty to his nearest and his dearest, to his dearest friend, John, and to his mother, You know, it's very easy. Calvin suggests this. It's very easy for people who serve God in ministry of one kind or another, either as ministers or missionaries or or just very eager and enthusiastic lay people who invest their own time in mission and work for the church. Very easy in our preoccupation with spiritual work and God's work to neglect the care of those who we should be caring for. We all know the horror stories of ministers' kids or missionary kids who go off the rails. It's a tragedy for the family, tragedy for them. 
And it's not always this case, but in many cases it's because of neglect. Jesus did not neglect to do his duty towards his mother, even in this moment of his life. And he's an example to us of what we owe, the duties we owe to parents and spouses and children, as Calvin tells us. Now, here's a question. Why does he call her woman and not mom or mother? Uh, William Henriksen says that the word mother would probably have been too hard for Mary for him to speak affectionately towards him as his mom at that moment might have driven the sword even more deeply into the soul of Mary. You remember Simeon had promised way back in Luke chapter 2 that, uh, that what was going to happen to Jesus and that there would be a sword thrust into her heart too. And here at the cross, just as at the wedding of Cana and Galilee, the only two times that Jesus addresses his mother in John's gospel, he addresses her with the word woman. And in both cases, he distances himself. It's a distancing word. It may echo the word, words we find in the Old Testament about Eve, Eve the mother of all the living, and Mary, Eve's daughter, the mother of life itself, the Theotokos, the bearer of God. So, we have this picture of Jesus then uh, reminding her that her relationship to him is the relationship to him that John has and you have. He is her Lord and her Savior and her God. So we read that from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now, this relationship that Jesus is pointing to here, I think there's something else in this that is suggested by Ritterboss and others, and that is that this relationship is a kind of paradigm of the community uh, that Jesus is leaving behind him. That is the community of the church. Both Mary, his mother, and the disciple that Jesus loves represents this new community. And Mary will step back as his mother. John will step up to come to, Mary, to Mary's aid. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This has a salvation historical reference to the new family of God. In the family of God, we not only worship God vertically, we are to care for one another horizontally. In other words, this is a microcosm of the kind of caring and fellowship that is to exist within this new community Jesus is leaving behind him called the church. And if you are looking after and caring for and loving on the people in our congregation that you know, if you're doing it, and I'm doing it, and we're all doing it, then technically everybody should be being cared for, looked after, and loved on. Isn't that true? 
Now, of course, we have officers who have a particular responsibility in that, but it's a responsibility for all of us to do that. This is what this community is meant to be like. And so we learn that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. Well, we've seen the mockers and the mother. Now I have a third point. We have the mortuus invictus. That is, the one who dies unconquered and undefeated. Let's walk through this. Think of what we've just learned. After this, we read, Jesus knew all was now finished. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, all refer to what comes next. Jesus said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Throughout his life and throughout his time in the cross, Jesus has been acting uh, for the salvation of God's elect, those whom the Father has given to him. And all that he did was to fulfill Scripture. Everything was to fulfill Scripture. And one of the terrible torments of crucifixion as a form of punishment was the thirst due to the excessive blood loss And all of the stress of the passage is on the thirst. Jesus is thirsty. I thirst. This is not to be uh, symbolized or or, uh, qualified to the umpteenth point uh, and frittered away as if it were of no importance. It is his thirst that's important. And so a sponge is soaked with sour wine. It's attached to the top of a stalk of hyssop. It's held up to his mouth, pushed against his mouth. That's the only way Jesus could have got any kind of liquid into him from the cross, uh, on the cross. And he needed that. He needed it simply because he'd lost so much blood and he was now towards the end of his life. Now, is there any other relevance to this picture? Well, I'll tell you one which you can just take or leave, and that is that in in the history of redemption in the Old Testament, when there were sacrifices made, a bunch of hyssop was usually taken and dipped into the blood, and the hyssop was kind of flung around by the hand of the priest like this so that if you were anywhere near, you got some blood on you, and it was a symbol that the sacrifice had atoned for you and forgiven you. In Psalm 51, we have David. He's just committed adultery and murder. There is no sacrifice that he can offer for the forgiveness for those two sins. And he's praying to God for forgiveness. But he's praying to God for forgiveness that can only come about if there's a sacrifice that can cover those two sins. And he starts to speak to God of a sacrifice that God knows that he doesn't know. And he says to God, wash me with hyssop. What he's saying to God is, you must know where you can dip the hyssop so that you can sprinkle it on me and cleanse me from my sin. Well, we do know there's a sacrifice that covers both those sins. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus. And maybe... 
that calling attention to the hyssop is meant to make that link with David's prayer. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But I think you should think about it. Well, now it's the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Luke reports the final prayer that Jesus makes. It's a line from Psalm 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke and John do not report Jesus using the first words from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But both those gospels quote other verses in Psalm 22. In other words, when Jesus says those words, he's not meaning you to think that he's at the end of his tether. He wants you to think, where do those words come from? He wants you to go and read those words. That's what a rabbi would do. He would just say a line and say, go and find out what the rest of that psalm means or says. And so you find that happening in these passages. Both Psalm 22 and 31 and 39 are quoted quite a lot in, on, while Jesus is on the cross. And each of those psalms, including Psalm 22, by the way, Breathe a quiet confidence in God. Even though the, the, the person praying is surrounded by enemies. Even though there are pressures coming from every side. There is a feeling of quiet confidence. Psalm 31, for example, puts it like this. Be strong and let, not you, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. Psalm 22 does something similar. In John's account, Jesus' last word, his very last word, is the last word in Psalm 22. The very last word. It's the word finished. It is finished. Psalm 22 says, he has wrought it. That's W-R-O-U-G-H-T. Very good word which we've lost a bit in English, I think. But it just means accomplished something. He's accomplished it. He's finished the job. All this he has done is another translation. But all of it's a translation of this word. He loved his own to the end. The telos, the end. That word is also used in Hebrews to make perfect. He has made a perfect sacrifice. He has been the perfect priest. He has dedicated himself or consecrated himself to God and been accepted as a priest. And he has offered to God, dedicated to God, the supreme sacrifice, which happens to be his own humanity. And that is acceptable to God. He has accomplished the handing over of himself on behalf of his elect people to the Father. And that has been accepted. Finished. Finished underlines the mystery of the cross. Finished tells us that the cross of Jesus is enough. Enough to save men and women all over the world. Finished tells us that the cross of Jesus eclipses all other acts of worship. That this cross is the true glorifying of God. That this cross is the magnet that will draw men and women from all the tribes of the world to God through Jesus. 
What strikes us as we read the story of the cross is how like God, God is in Christ. How like God, God is in Christ. And I want to pick out one, one attribute of God. And that's the attribute of God's patience. God's patience. This is, patience is a virtue. Find it if you can. Seldom in a woman, never in a man. So my mother used to say. Uh, patience, though, is a virtue required of us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But it is, first of all, an attribute of God. And it's captured. What patience means in the Bible is captured by other words that you should know. Long-suffering. Slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Steadfastness. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, God's patience, i.e. his long-suffering, waited in the day of Noah, waited for the people in Noah's day to look for mercy. He restrained himself from punishing them until they had the opportunity to respond. Now, Tertullian begins with God's patience in one of his books. He talks about God's patience with all of us in creation. He scatters the light and the life to the world, to the just and the unjust people. He allows the earth to produce food for the worthy and the unworthy. He bears with the sins and wrongdoings of people. Tertullian talks about the incarnation. He says the incarnation is the most visible sign of God's patience. Think of this. God dwells in timeless eternity. When God made the universe, which in time take billions of years and are billions of miles and all of that stuff, when God made the universe, there was no passage of time. He said, let there be and there was. That's the way it works from God's end. It's we who feel passage of time. Jesus existed in timeless eternity, and yet he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. His human nature was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, Jesus didn't sit around in heaven waiting, waiting for the gestation to take place and as a, you know, kind of on-looking. Remember, this is Jesus' human nature. He has assumed this human nature as his own. As God, there's no presence, pa- passage of time whatsoever. But as, as the one whose human nature this is, he learns firsthand how long it takes to be in the womb. And then when the child is born, how long it takes for that child to mature from uh, infancy up to adulthood and maturity. And even once he starts the work that he's come into the world to do at the age of 30, how resistant people are to him and how difficult people are to teach and and how resistant people are. And so he holds back from identifying who he really is. It's taking a lot of time, 
I don't think God gets frustrated, but I could pretend he does, or at least convince myself that I would, if I was God, get frustrated. But you see what, what's happening, there's long suffering. Jesus on earth could have called down 10 legions of angels to destroy the world and set him free. What does he do? He takes time. He is long-suffering, long-suffering. Augustine tells us that the passion of our Lord is a lesson in patience. Think what Jesus is putting up with through these hours, the hours of night where he's on trial before, first of all, the Jewish authorities and then in the early morning before the Roman governor. And these hours on the cross, the pain, the agony, the, what the people are doing to him, what does he do? Does, does he get angry with them? Does he get frustrated at them? Does he shout back at them? No. He's long-suffering. See what he's put through. And mark his patience. And read Psalm 22 and 31, uh, 61. And see what it was that made him long-suffering. It was hope. Hope. To be impatient is to live without hope. So Jesus is an example to us of patience. And uh, we could do with learning patience, couldn't we? This is how Tertullian sums it up for, on our behalf. Patience outfits faith, guides peace, assists love, equips humility, waits for repentance, seals confession, keeps the flesh in check, preserves the spirit, bridles the tongue, restrains the hands, tramples temptation underfoot, removes what causes us to stumble, brings martyrdom to perfection, enlightens the care of the poor, teaches moderation to the rich, lifts the burdens of the sick, delights the believer, welcomes the unbeliever, commends the servant to his master and his master to God, adorns women and gives grace to men. Patience is loved in children, praised in youth, admired in the elderly. It is beautiful in either sex and at every age of life. Her countenance is tranquil and peaceful, her brow serene. Patience sits on the throne of the most gentle and peaceful spirit. For where God is, there is his progeny. Patience, patience. May God make us a patient people. Well, after drinking the vinegar, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, finished, done, wrought. That word signifies an action brought to a termination, like a line ends at a point. With this word, he makes his report to the Father. 
I finished the work that you gave me to do. The ancient prophecies have been fulfilled. The great high priest has made the final sacrifice, the one that puts away sin. The great substitute has paid the great price for our ransom. There's nothing left undone. The work of redemption, reconciliation is complete. And with this cry of victory, he bowed his head. That was his own action. The temple of his body is given over to destruction. He dies, but he dies unconquered, undefeated, finished, accomplished, and all for you, all for you, and for your salvation. Let's pray together. Dearest, beloved Lord Jesus, thank you for your infinite patience, your long-suffering towards us. Teach us to be so towards one another, and help us, Lord, to constantly be coming back to the cross and finding there our salvation and our life and our joy. In your strong name, amen.